Welcome to the History West Midlands series of podcasts about Staffordshire Horde. We're going to be looking at new information, stories, ideas emerging from the research into the Horde. I'm Jenny Butterworth. I am the programme coordinator for the Staffordshire Horde. I work for Birmingham Museums Trust and the Potteries Museum and Art Gallery in Stoke-on-Trent. I'm delighted to welcome today for our first podcast three key people in the Horde story. We have... Dave Simmons, who until recently was the Curator of Archaeology and Numismatics at Birmingham Museums Trust. Deb Klemperer, who is the Principal Curator at the Potteries Museum and Art Gallery. And Chris Fern, who is the Lead Archaeologist on the Staffordshire Horde Research Project, which is funded by Historic England and the owners of the Horde. So today, for our first podcast, we are going to look generally at the Horde, what it is and what it tells us about the Anglo-Saxon world and the ancient kingdom of Mercia in particular. When the Horde was first discovered in 2009, there was a lot of talk about where it was found in a sort of very anonymous field in the English Midlands and it is obviously an extraordinary collection. So the obvious question was, what is it doing there? And what can it tell us about life in Anglo-Saxon England? So I thought perhaps to start, Dave and Deb, we might cast our minds back to when the Horde was first discovered. You were both there and when it sort of came to the museums. And I just wondered, Dave, can you just give us a sense of what we thought about the Horde then rather than now? You know, what do we know about it from the start? From the start, I think the overwhelming sensation was just, wow. It was an astonishing find. Nothing like it had ever appeared before. This... A really anonymous field in South Staffordshire produced something over five kilos of gold and there was about a kilo and a half of silver. So it was a huge amount of precious metal for Anglo-Saxon England. The initial cataloguing that was done prior to the coroner's inquest already numbered about 1,700 pieces. Kevin Leahy for the Portable Antiquities Scheme did a sterling job listing them all and cataloguing them while never, ever stopping smiling. He could not stop smiling because it was such a delight to work with these pieces. And surprisingly, many of them were fairly clean and there was very little modern damage to them. So you could look at them and they seemed very stable and you could examine them really, really closely. It was astonishing. I first visited here, I came to the Birmingham Museum with Her Majesty's Coroner for Staffordshire and he was absolutely astounded. That's a member of the general public, really, who knows nothing about this type of material. As the conservation process went on and our conservators examined the mud on objects and they found the little fragments that had been hiding in the mud, we're now saying something like 4,000 objects, bits of objects or tiny broken fragments. So it's a massively complex find. What became very clear very quickly was that we were dealing with something that, as far as we recognised, was overwhelmingly deriving from military kit, material from sword handles. And it's important to say not swords, it was just the stuff they'd stripped off the handles because the sword blades weren't there. And I think it does make a point, actually, about the hoard, which I want to get in quite early, is that we'll be talking a lot about the kinds of objects that were represented in the hoard, but we need to keep in mind this find is actually a lot of gold and silver. They've come from swords, they've come from other things, but it's the gold and silver that was kept and went into the ground. 
So this is one reason why, to me, it's a treasure hoard. And um, it was really interesting as well because of what the things that weren't there, the big buckles for leather straps and so on that might have held scabbards and so on on the body. So there's a lack of those. But the lack of swords is very interesting because swords themselves were very precious items. Even then we knew that. This is talking about when the hoard was found in 2009 and they would be pattern welded and they would be precious items, but they obviously can be reused. You can strip off the personal fittings of one warrior and therefore not just kill them but kill their memory and then refit that sword with another set of equally fantastic trappings because these are really, really superb pieces. And even then we realised that there were some pieces that the like of which had never been seen before. And many items, we didn't know what they were. And Dave, you were part of one of the first identifications of a suite of objects, the first realisation that some of these objects fitted together. Yeah, that was one of the more exciting moments in the early times with the hoard. And I should pay credit at this point to a colleague from the British Museum, Andrew Middleton, who used to be one of the scientific specialists down there. Lots of people wanted to come and see the hoard, you'll understand. And Andrew came up to have a look at some of the pieces and he was looking at one piece and said, you realise there's a shadow on this where something else has fitted onto it. And literally two minutes earlier, I'd been holding the thing that fitted into that shadow. And we put those two pieces together and started thinking about other pieces. And gradually here we were able to identify over the next couple of days some more bits that went together. And we suddenly realised we were looking at the fittings from a thing called a Sayax. It's a single-edged knife. But... This must have been an astonishing knife because the handle contains three ounces of gold. I mean, there's over 80 grams of gold in this thing. Mm. And it's the finest garnet work in the hoard, in my humble opinion, but I'm probably prejudiced. And it wouldn't have looked out of place in the famous Sutton Hoo ship burial. I mean, it was that level of object. And I think that was a real wow moment again. Over to you, I guess, Chris. So we have a lot of objects. Some of them clearly fit together. The conservation work is starting to clean the objects and reveal more. And once the research project began, it has been your task for the last few years to study those individual objects and work out more. So just tell us more about where we're at now with what we know about the hoard and its composition. Yes, my job really has been to try and make sense of the fragments. It's really like working with multiple different jigsaw puzzles from which people have removed pieces and tip the jigsaw puzzles together, mix them all around. And then what I'm trying to do is put these pieces back together and work out what the minimum number of objects we're dealing with, what those objects are and where they've come from. Because as Dave has already said, this material was systematically but very crudely stripped from weaponry on the whole. And so we're dealing with uh, precious metal fittings from the handles of swords, pommels from the ends of swords. Uh, We're dealing with plates that came from the guards of the sword. There would have been a guard at the front of the sword and one at the back. And then we're also dealing with precious metal fittings from the grip as well, from collars and rings that wrapped around the grip and also with other inlays into the grips. And these grips and the guards would have been made of horn, probably. We have some organic remains that are still being identified, but may well be horn. These fitted to the end of the sword blade, the tang. But as I said, they haven't been carefully removed with a view to reuse. They've been um, crudely stripped, and we have evidence of that. We have objects that have been cut deliberately to take them off. We've Some of the pommels 
show that they've been levered from the ends of the swords. Others suggest that metal smithing tongs were perhaps used to pull them from the ends of the swords. So after your, the years you've spent so far studying, that initial thought that this is largely what we'd think of as male kit, material from weapons and armour, holds true. You haven't found lots of female jewellery in there or anything like that. No, that's right. It is mainly male kit. There were a couple of objects that were initially identified as potentially being female objects, one potential brooch, and that now is no longer the case. That object is not a brooch although we are as yet to identify exactly what it is. So there are no female-type objects in the collection. But it is important to stress that there is a small but important uh, group of objects which represent ecclesiastical equipment. The great gold-folded cross, which may well have uh, been mounted on a processional cross, or have been an altar cross, or have been mounted on a book cover, perhaps. And there are other fittings that, that may also come from church objects, as well as a pectoral cross as well in the collection, at least one, and possibly there are fragments of more. So that's the sort of cross that a high-status ecclesiastical figure would wear around the neck? Or potentially it might have been worn by a high-status princely figure who wasn't a churchman. To sort of show his Christian but, credentials. But our, our best parallel in Anglo-Saxon England is the wonderful golden garnet pectoral cross that was found in the coffin of St Cuthbert. In scale and as a prestige item, that is our closest parallel. And what about the date? What sense do you have, Chris, of the range of the dates of the objects and when they might have gone into that field? The majority of the collection fits with the metalworking, as we understand it, of the first half of the 7th century, so that is roughly 600 to 650 AD. But there is a small part of the collection that is earlier than that, mainly silver fittings from swords, which uh, date to the later part of the 6th century, probably its last quarter. And these may be fittings from what we would term heirloom weapons, weapons that were in circulation for a long period. And one of the reasons we think that is because some of these fittings show quite heavy wear from use. We also know about the tradition of heirloom weaponry from Anglo-Saxon sources like the great heroic poem Beowulf. So this would be a man who's carrying his grandfather's sword or his great-grandfather's sword with him. That's right, yes. So if we know we have a group of material, some of it's much older than others, and it's then being buried sort of perhaps in the mid to late 7th century, would we say? It's fair to say there's still quite a bit of work to be done on the dating of the latest objects in the collection as well. We have metalwork that could well occupy a date in the third quarter of the 7th century and there is also still an ongoing debate about the date of the famous piece with its um, biblical inscription which early on following the discovery of the hoard was dated by some experts quite late we're into the 8th century and possibly even into the 9th century although other experts have favoured a date in the later part of the 7th century Overall, in its technology, the metal strip with the inscription can be compared with items in the hoard that date to around the middle of the 7th century. So it's possible that it does occupy a, a position at that point. In terms of a date of deposition for the hoard, well, we're obviously looking 
at a date for burial after the latest date of the objects in the collection. And that is one of the greatest puzzles. Until we can figure out how late the latest objects in the collection are, we can't really say when the hoard was buried. And people need to go out on a limb in a way. I think with the inscription, I can see why they're saying what they're saying, but there are very few inscriptions to go on. It's going to be interesting how the debate works out as to whether people will say, actually, we don't know quite for sure because... There are so few inscriptions of that date and that nature. What you're saying is we should come back to you in a... Well, and the other key thing to point out is that the hoard contained no coins. And we're in a period in Anglo-Saxon England when coinage is in circulation in some parts of the country, and albeit in limited circulation, not in the locality of the hoard itself, though not in Mercia in the first half of the 7th century. But we have no coins, which are the objects that often date hoards. There may be a potential, with our further research, perhaps to get some radiocarbon dates, some scientific absolute dates, as we do have a small amount of organic in the collection, and that may also help us uh, pin down a date for burial. But if we say in general terms we're sort of talking later in the 7th century, maybe, that sort of period, then you've mentioned Mercia. So I was going to turn to Dave and just give us the background then on where the hoard was found. Right. Well, nowadays, the hoard is discovered very close to the modern village of Hammerwich, right on the South Staffordshire border with the West Midlands County, literally just a few miles from Lichfield and Tamworth, which later in the 7th century are going to become two of the major centres for the Mercian kingdom. I mean, Lichfield is going to become the seat of the bishopric of the Mercians, and Tamworth is going to become one of the major royal estates somewhere that we know later the kings were tending to spend important religious festivals. So in those terms, this is smack bang in the centre of what is going to become the the major power centre for Mercia. More prosaically, the hoard is found up a hill slope right next door to the A5. (laughs) Now it's important because the A5 is the old Watling Street. It's a Roman road. And in the 7th century, it still would have been surviving well enough to be an important routeway. And where does that Roman road go from to... Um, it starts London way down, to it? Shrewsbury, effectively. It's yeah, a Shropshire yeah. kind of so area. So it's a major route. There's maybe one explanation for why the hoard is where it is. I mean, speculating wildly, we know the hoard is deposited on a, a lens of natural clay in a, a field that's generally quite sandy. And you can argue that if the soil is different, there may be a clump of something different growing there because you've got more water in a clay soil. And maybe on your hill slope edge, you saw something nice growing there and you thought that's the landmark, I'll nip up the hill and put it there. But the important thing is that this area was very much a no man's land in the Anglo-Saxon period. It sits between two centres of habitation. You have the valley of the river Penk and the valley of the river Tame. And then you've got the bit in between, and the hoard is in the bit in between. And even into the 18th century, this was very much a kind of no-man's land of scrubby woodland and heathland. Apparently it was still the haunt of highwaymen in the 18th century. So you've got a very classic kind of place to hide a hoard. I mean, certainly if this was a couple of hundred years later and it was a hoard of coins, I mean, it would raise no eyebrows whatsoever because you want to hide something where nobody's going to see you hiding it. So going off into the middle of nowhere and Burying your stash is a great place to do it. Moving on to Mercia proper, I mean, Mercia is one of the seven great Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. I mean, if people had this drummed into them at school, there's this famous thing, the Heptarchy. It's the seven kingdoms. And you have Wessex, Sussex, Kent, Essex, East Anglia, Mercia and Northumbria. Well done. It's it's (laughs) engraved. (laughs) 
And I think that it's important, I'm sure Chris can probably say more about this as well, that the time the Horde seems to be being put together, these kingdoms are still slightly fluid. I mean, certainly mm. Mercia is still a very fluid thing. It's something that's in the act of creation in the seventh century. And what we seem to be seeing from the sources we have are, if you go back into the sixth century, you've got very tiny groups. I mean, what we would call folk groups. Yeah. I mean, the, the people in the River Penka, the Penksaita, the, the River Tame, you have the Tomsaita. Here in Birmingham, we probably have the Biormingas. <laughs> and in the 6th century, what we think is happening is these groups are being merged into sub-kingdoms. And some of these tinier kingdoms certainly survive into the historic period when we can recognise them and we can see them being brought into Mercia. A key one there is the Huitcher, who are the people who live in Worcestershire, or what's mm. nowadays Worcestershire. Mm. So there's a process of agglomeration and takeover going on with the leading dynasties, these are the successful kings who are gradually spreading their control. They're taking in more and more terrain. And that's how these kingdoms are coming together. And that's the origin of Mercia. The one other thing I'd add is that certainly with Mercia, we seem to be seeing this process happening, bringing both native Britons and Germanic invaders, Saxons, Angles together. Mercia does seem to have a very mixed origin. So there's Roman Britain, yep. which comes to an end traditionally in 410. 410, that's right. Probably not that neatly. <laughs> so you have a sort of population of Romano-British. Ro- Romanised Britons or Britons, yeah, more or less Romanised. Groups of Saxons and Angles. They're arriving, arriving in the south and on the east, and then they're gradually moving inland. And that, I think, is where you're getting these small you know, folk groups coming from. They're, it's quite typical of a frontier society that you'll get a group move off from the bit that's been settled and they'll move in and grab another bit of terrain and they set themselves up as one little group and then there's more move. Again, it's probably significant that this kingdom is Mercia and it means the people on the march, yeah. which is the borderland. Yes, I think that's a really important point to emphasise that, as David said, we're in a period of very considerable political change as well as intellectual change with the coming of Christianity. In its localised setting, the Horde is both enigmatic but significantly located beside a Roman road. But in the bigger picture, its location shows it as an even greater enigma. It's right at the edge of where we see Anglo-Saxon material culture spreading. Our burial sites, which are Anglo-Saxon with grave goods that are typical of the period don't quite extend up as far as the Horde and the spread of Anglo-Saxon objects as we see it through finds recovered by metal detectorists, etc., ends almost at the point of where the hoard is buried. And it's interesting, isn't it, that just a kilometre from the hoard site, there's one piece of female jewellery that was found, which is the same date, a golden garnet pendant. But Chris is right that this area is difficult, and all this talk about mercy is difficult because very little is written down. So you're going on place names, you're going on artefact spreads, you're going on excavations of sites. Sites are hard to find on clayey soils. In short, the horde is not where we would expect to no. find it. No. Where if so, if you had if thought the horde exists, where would you have expected to find right. it? Right. Well, somewhere along the southeast, in one of the prominent southeast kingdoms, in perhaps East Kent, or in the Suffolk region, territories that have produced quite a lot of this. Similar prestige material with filigree decoration and garnet cloisonne decoration in gold, where we find this material in burials and where we also see evidence of the earliest kingdoms really emerging in Kent and in East Anglia and quite potentially up further north in Northumbria. 
because these are the areas, the southeast was perhaps the most Romanized area, yeah, maybe. So perhaps more adaptable to yet more change than the border areas, which are always the border areas, maybe. And it's also the area that's most closely associated with the continent. Yes, yes I think that's, that's vitally absolutely. important. The materials that we see in the hoard, the gold, the silver, the garnet, would have come from the continent. And also the technologies, the craft skills required for those objects would also have come via the continent, very possibly in the form of craftsmen themselves. I think it's no coincidence that we see high status metalworking taking place in the southeast of England first. So I suppose against perhaps our expectations, this extraordinary treasure is found in this sort of border area where we've got folk groups that are merging into greater kingdoms. But obviously the finding of it where it was does tell us something new about the Mercian people. And I'm assuming from what we've been talking about, it's telling us about a particular sort of Mercian. Well, yes, it's important to emphasise that all of this material is high-status metalwork. The intrinsic value, obviously, of the, the materials used, the gold, the silver and the garnets, and the technologies used all point to both elite production and elite use. So, yes, these aren't ordinary objects. One of the key points for interpreting the hoard is identifying where the material was produced. And as we've already said, if we had put money on where a hoard like this might have turned up, we'd have put it uh, in the southeast of England. We might have put it near the famous site of Sutton Hoo, for example, which, as Dave has pointed out, has similarities in terms of its regalia. Remembering that Sutton Hoo has been called a burial ground of kings, may well be the cemetery of the early East Anglian rulers. We would put the hoard down near Sutton Hoo, or we perhaps put it near Kent, or in Kent even. So many of the objects in the hoard have their most obvious associations in these regions. Having said that, there have been significant steps in terms of identifying metalwork of similar type that have been the result of finds recorded by the Portable Antiquities Scheme in England, metal detector finds, which do also have parallels in the hoard. And one of the great tasks for us with the research project is to try to to identify where this material outside the hall clusters, where objects of similar type are most prominent, with a view to trying to identify workshop sites and potential sites of provenance for the hall material. East Anglia presents an obvious example. Uh, Kent does have similarities, but there is also uh, metalwork appearing now from the north of England, which also has similarities with, with material in the hoard. Yeah, I mean, isn't Kent so-called Kentish style? Aren't most of the finds with that style actually not found in Kent? That's right. We have this filigree animal art style that we see on a lot of the metalwork in the hoard, which did have its closest parallels in metalwork from Kent. However, we have now identified quite a lot of uh, similar pommels outside of the hoard that have been found by metal detectorists, um, which suggest a more northerly distribution, potentially. So we may be looking at styles that may have originated in Northumbria or the Kingdom of Lindsay, which have contributed to the Horde. And the other big question, of course, is, could any of the metalwork have been made in Mercia? That's the obvious elephant in the room. (laughs) And whilst it's true to say that the spread of high-status gold and garnet metalwork covers the whole of Anglo-Saxon England and does extend into the area of the Trent Valley, where we have the Mercian heartland, It is a thin scatter, and the thing to emphasise is that with all of these objects, they are 
portable antiquities, they move around. So this is the other big challenge, trying to pin what are movable objects down to actual sites of production. So if what we're saying is that we have in the hoard we have a collection of objects, some of which might have been made in Northumbria, East Anglia, Kent, or indeed Mercia, and that they're found in this slightly unexpected location, and that they're high status, is it telling us something about the kings, the princes, the high status people who are part of building that Mercian kingdom? And have we got any characters that we could attach to the horde? Wouldn't it be lovely if this horde was the horde of King Pender? <laughs> Wouldn't it? <laughs> who, was, who helped bring Mercia together, although some people might not have liked the way he did it. He was a pagan king, and that's great pagan warrior king of Mercia, and he died in a battle, not surprisingly. And it's because of the mix of materials, you could suggest that this was a gathering of materials from battle, from loot, gained because of this idea that you, from the dead warriors, you gather up the material, then you can give it to your great warriors in return to bind them to you and so on. Because we don't know when it went into the ground and there is no one writing to say that this horde went missing or to describe in detail what was held in the booty that he did obviously gain from these battles, then we will never know. We've talked about kingdom building and the way you mm. built kingdoms was by the sword. I mean, mm. it's that simple. Warfare is endemic at this period. There's the old analogy of rats in a sack, and I think you can see every Anglo-Saxon king very much as a rat fighting for its bit of the sack. Being a king was an incredibly dangerous thing, uh, certainly in the 7th and 8th centuries. I mean, it was a very rare king who died in his bed. I mean, Pender kills two kings from Northumbria and two mm -hmm. kings from East Anglia, so as Deb said, he'd be a great source for all this lovely loot that might be Northumbrian, that might be East Anglian, that might be Kentish. Yeah. Pender stands out in the period. Absolutely. And he's being called a colossus of the 7th century stage by one historian. And he's, he is a very successful war leader, perhaps leading a confederacy from the Mercian region, and he defeats the Northumbrians and East Anglians in multiple battles. He allies with lots of people, doesn't he? That he needs to be allied with at that time. It doesn't matter what their faith is. Or... There's nothing in the horde that stamped Penderex. No, no. sadly. Um, no. But we can say that much of the horde metalwork was made and probably in use during the considerable period of time in which Pender ruled the region around the Upper Trent Valley, effectively the second quarter of the 7th century. I think the one thing we can say about the hoard is it is such a, a large amount of precious metalwork, bullion in effect, that there has to have been a significant personal authority involved in its collection and its maintenance as a sort of treasury. Are we saying if it isn't Pender, it's somebody like Pender? It's somebody of high power. I think we do have to be careful about one thing in that there's nothing to compare this to. So if we're actually honest and we step back, we don't know what 11 pounds of gold means in the seventh century. I mean, whether it has to be a pender figure or a king, mm. or whether a leading nobleman, for example, might have had access to 11 pounds of gold. And because there are no comparisons, we, we just have to be a little bit cautious on this one. Because you can only compare with, I suppose, with burials and somewhere yeah. we, we saw things as very high status if they had one sword pommel, one sword in the grave, and then you've got 70, 75 sword pommels. <laughs> the number of pommels changes as we, um, <laughs> as we stick fragments together. So I think, Deb, what we're seeing is that the Horde tells us about elite Mercian groups, but it doesn't really tell us anything about ordinary Mercian peasants, people who work for a living. They're like two separate worlds. Absolutely two separate worlds, and they, they're 
provisions were just for themselves. They had to work really hard to survive. Life expectancy was mid-30s, maybe, but that would be the same for the wealthy as well as the poor. And they wouldn't have had much contact with this elite group of warriors who owned this material. And ordinary, everyday people would never have seen these things. They wouldn't even know what they were. This sort of mercy in Heartland, at the moment, within modern Staffordshire, holds a village we now call Catholm, which was occupied during the 6th to 9th centuries, fairly stable, all in the same place, excavated thoroughly, 65 building traces recovered with trackways and so on. Hardly any material culture. By that, I mean you had coarse pottery, you had some loom weights, which were used to weight the wool when you were weaving. You have a few whetstones and quernstones because life was literally the daily grind. And nothing else. It's astonishing how poor the culture there is. And there's the nearby cemetery, which may have been for some of the people from that settlement, which is called Witchnor, has much more. Of course, people were buried with important symbols of what they were and who they were. And so there's more ironwork in terms of shield fittings, knives, spearheads and so on in that burial ground than found in the whole of the settlement. It's absolutely astonishing. Mm-hmm. And yet these people all lived at the time of the Horde. Mm-hmm. We should also remember that the Saxons, I mean, a lot of their culture is perishable. I mean, yes. their buildings are in wood, yes. their textiles are gone. They would have had leather yeah. drinking yeah. vessels, wouldn't they? Yeah. Fabric clothing, none of that survives, oh. and that's why it looks so poor. And we know that later in the Saxon period, I mean, English embroidery is incredibly famous. I mean, popes are delighted to get gifts of textiles from England that have been embroidered. And all we, that's gone. We have it? to picture this rich culture that has just disappeared. Yeah. I guess what we're saying is the hoard is so exceptional. It's telling us something new about the Mercians, probably in terms of their abilities in warfare, their reach, their material culture, but we still have further to go to fully understand what it's telling us about the Mercian Kingdom. Oh, absolutely. I think it's an enigmatic find in perhaps Anglo-Saxon England's most enigmatic kingdom. Well, thank you very much, Chris, Deb and Dave, for your fascinating insights into the Horde in its Mercian and Anglo-Saxon context. In the next episode, we'll look in more detail at the incredible artwork that's present on the Horde and what it tells us about Anglo-Saxon belief and culture. ...that are being used to unlock their secrets. <laughs>